Let's go through again, and, and by the end of this series, you're going to be able to tell me what our goals are. Maybe you already could, but the number one goal is, is to love Ecclesiastes, right? I want you to, to, you're on the patio, you're talking to a guy, he says, well, what are you studying men's Bible study? We're studying the book, book of Ecclesiastes. Why in the world would you want to study the book of Ecclesiastes? I want you to have an answer for that is really what we're driving at here and why Ecclesiastes matters, why it's important to us, significant to us. Second, I, I want you to love life under the sun your daily life, everything that you're doing. Uh, God wants us to enjoy this life. He doesn't want Christians to walk around as the most morose, somber, depressed people on the face of the planet. He wants us to be able to enjoy the, the good things that he provides us, but in the right way. And so that's another important thing. And a big portion of that is, is learning from the reality of, of death. Uh, how we enjoy life depends on our understanding of the fact that, that death is going to be a reality for us. We're going to talk about that quite a bit this morning. Uh, but we need to learn to, uh, to, to wrestle with death and, uh, and embrace the reality that it's going to happen. And okay, so if it's going to happen, how should I now be living my life today? And that's going to cause us in turn to, to let go of some of the things in our lives that we've held on so tightly to, some of those idols that God needs to take the pry bar and, and just rip out of our hands. Uh, or sometimes maybe it's not that we need to completely let go of it, but we just need to readjust our grip. We need to loosen our grip on that a little bit and realize this is not everything to me. Uh, the only thing that should be everything to me is my relationship with Christ. Everything else is a gift from God that I can enjoy, but I need to enjoy it uh, properly and enjoy it as a gift from him. And then finally, we want to be prepared for the Bema Seat. Because when death comes, this is going to be the next reality for us, that we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. And that's Solomon's conclusion to the book when he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard is this, fear God and keep his commandments. For every thought and every deed is going to be brought into judgment before the Lord. So that's why Ecclesiastes for us. And we've seen Solomon walk through and, and in that opening chapter kind of indict everything in the world. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And we, we establish that that's not a statement of, of meaninglessness. It's not a statement of futility. It's not a statement of hopelessness. It's not a statement of, well, it is a statement of, of despair in, in some regards, I guess. But it's a statement that's, that's indicting the fleeting nature of pleasures under the sun that it's here today and gone tomorrow, that there's nothing of lasting substance that you can hold on to and say, this is going to satisfy me permanently or eternally that we can lay hold of, uh, materially speaking, under the sun. And then in chapter two, the first part that we looked at last week, he began to explore and turn over these different rocks and kind of get into the weeds of, of what are some of the, the main areas we look to for that sense of satisfaction under the sun. We talked about bliss and we talked about accomplishment and we talked about pleasures or, or wealth. And Solomon said, none of that is going to satisfy you. It's all vanity. And Solomon was the wisest, most wealthy king that ever lived. And he had at his disposal everything he needed to do, as he said, which is, I'm going to set myself to explore everything under heaven to see, is there anything that can answer the question of Ecclesiastes 1.3? What does a man gain from all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Well, this week, Solomon's going to turn over another rock. This week, Solomon's going to turn over the rock of, of wisdom. And we have to remember back, again, 1 Kings chapter 3, the Lord appears to Solomon and says to Solomon, Solomon, what would you have? What, what would I be able to give for you that you would ask or, or want of me? And Solomon wisely, even in that stage, before the Lord imparts the full wisdom to him, says, you know, I, I need wisdom to govern the people that you've entrusted to me. I need wisdom to be a good king over Israel. And so God gives him wisdom. And it says in verse 12 that he gave him more wisdom than any human being that's walked on the face of the earth. And Solomon had wisdom in, in really two senses. And, and we understand this in the sense of, number one, he had the wisdom that is the fear of God. 
He had the wisdom that comes from what he wrote about in the book of Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that it's that understanding, okay, I need to live my life in obedience to God. I need to live my life faithfully to him. I need to make wise decisions as it relates to my standing before him. There's that category of wisdom. But then there's also the wisdom that, that's more of the wisdom of the world, the street smarts kind of wisdom. And Solomon had that as well. And we, we mentioned that briefly last week. If you think back to the occasion where the two women come in with the one child and, and they come before Solomon and they're arguing over the child. And Solomon uses this street smarts wisdom to look at them and say, okay, here's what we'll do. Give me a sword. I'll cut the baby in half. You can each have half and you'll be fine. And the, the mom of the child says, no, give the child to the other woman. Don't harm the child. And Solomon uses his street smarts wisdom to be able to say, okay, that's the, the true mother. So Solomon possessed both. And, and the rock that he's turning over in the section before us in Ecclesiastes this morning is, is more of that street smarts wisdom than it is the fear of the Lord wisdom. Solomon's looking at wisdom for wisdom's sake and saying, is there meaning? Is there fulfillment? Is there satisfaction in, for lack of a better way to put it, being the smartest man in the room? And certainly Solomon was the smartest man in the room. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Let's start together in verse 12 and we'll read down through verse 14 to start. It says this, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? The implied answer there is nothing. He's saying, look, I, I'm, I'm the king. I'm the final word on this. Don't, don't wait for another word that's, that's coming after me. I'm, I'm the final word on this. Only what has already been done. Then I, I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. We'll stop right there for right now. This is Solomon basically pointing to the reality that there's a, a benefit to being a wise person. And you say, okay, well, I didn't need to show up this morning at 6.30 a.m. to hear you tell me there's a benefit to being a wise person. But it's important for him to establish this based on what he's going to say in the rest of this passage, in the rest of this section. It's important for us to, to realize and to admit and to acknowledge that we should want to be a wise person. In fact, I'm guessing you would rather spend time around a wise person than a fool. And I, I'm guessing for most of you in the room, if not all of you in the room, you'd rather be considered a wise person than to be considered a fool. And those of you with children, kids, sons, daughters, you would want them to find a, a husband or a wife in the future that is a wise person and not a foolish person, yes? There's wisdom that is, is the, a, a facet in the world even that the world can look at and say, yeah, that's, that's a good thing to be a wise person. And Solomon here says there's more gain in that. That word gain is the word for advantage or benefit or, a prof, or profit, there's more advantage to us if we will choose to be wise in life than choose to be foolish. And again, this is maybe basic, but this is important for us with where Solomon's going. He says, as there's more gain in light than in darkness. You wake up in the middle of the night because your wife nudges you and says, what was that? Did you hear that? You say, no. Okay, well, you're going to have to go look at that and check that out, right? My guess is when you leave the bedroom, you flip on a light because you'd rather not stumble through the darkness and trip down the stairs on your way to investigate the, the sound that apparently happened downstairs. Why? Because it's, it's easier in the light. It's more beneficial in the light for us. Just like he goes on to say, the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. I don't think any of us would choose willingly to say, well, I, I would rather be blind than be able to see. I think all of us are grateful that if, if we have vision, if we have eyesight, that we have it. And that we have eyes in our head to see where we're going rather than groping around and not being able to tell our way in darkness. And Solomon is saying wisdom does that for us. 
Wisdom provides that light for us. Wisdom helps us navigate the path of life. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, he commands us to get wisdom. Solomon says this in Proverbs 4, 7, the beginning of wisdom is this, get it. If you want to, to know the path to wisdom, it starts by pursuing wisdom. Get wisdom in whatever you get. Get insight, he says. It's not the only time in Proverbs he says this. He, he gives this statement over and over again. And so we need to understand, we need to confess, we need to admit that there are benefits to living wisely. And, and we need to pursue that as men. And we should be longing to pursue that as men. We should be wanting to pursue the benefits and, and to, to gain in wisdom, to grow in wisdom as Christian men. So our first point this morning is this. Do just that. Reap the benefits of living wisely. Participate in, benefit from, engage in what Solomon is saying here, that there's benefit to living wisely. That's one of the ways, men, that, that as we think back to our goals, we can enjoy life under the sun is by living a wise life under the sun. Both from that street smart side of wisdom and also from the fear of the Lord side of wisdom. We'll see as we progress more from the fear of the Lord side of wisdom. But let's think about the benefits of wisdom and what they might be for a minute. A wise person is going to prepare for the ups and downs of life. A wise person during times of plenty is going to save for the times of, of meagerness. A wise person is going to, to evaluate the potential dangers that might exist in pursuing a certain path and choose, well, instead of doing that, I'm going to do something that is a little bit more cautious or safe. A wise person is going to be a blessing to his friends. That's why, as we mentioned earlier, all of us would want to be around a, a, a person who is considered a wise person rather than a person who is considered a fool. We benefit from their wisdom. A wise person is also a person that's going to be able to, to show great discernment. When you have tough choices to make in life, if you are a, a wise individual, making that decision is going to be easier for you because you're going to be more apt to exercise good and, and right discernment in making that decision. Those are just some benefits that we can think of maybe off the top of the head, but the Bible talks a lot about wisdom. In fact, Ecclesiastes and then also the other book, one of the other books that Solomon wrote called Proverbs, right, is known as the genre of what in scripture? It's the wisdom literature genre, right? So it should come as no surprise that in the book of, of Proverbs, we find Solomon say a lot about wisdom a lot about being a wise man, and he actually lists quite a few benefits for us of being a wise man in the book of Proverbs. So let's just go through a few of these, and by a few, I mean more than a few, but some. Proverbs 3.35, the wise will inherit, what, honor, right? So there's a benefit to pursuing wisdom and to being a wise man because a wise man is, is an honorable man, and certainly that's more preferable to the contrast here, but fools get disgrace. We as Christian men should desire to be honorable men and not disgraceful men, not shameful men. Proverbs 8, 11, he says, for wisdom is better than jewels. Now remember who's writing this. This is King Solomon who made silver as plentiful as the stones in Jerusalem. This is King Solomon who had wealth that surpassed the wealth of any who had ruled in Jerusalem before him. 1 Kings three thirteen. So this is Solomon who had the money, who had the jewels, who had the wealth. And he's saying this, he says, Wisdom is better than jewels. Another benefit of wisdom is it's more precious than wealth. It's more valuable to us in our lives. It will accomplish more for us than our money will, than our possessions will, than our treasure. All that you desire, he says, may not compare with wisdom. He says something similar in verse 16 of chapter 16. He says, how much better is it to get wisdom than gold? Wisdom is more valuable than even gold, he says. 
To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. So another benefit to us of being wise men is we are giving ourselves access to something that Solomon says is going to do more for us than having more money in our bank account. Proverbs 12, 18. There's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Another benefit of wisdom is we have words that are, are soothing and calming and healing, and it's a balm to those that are hurting. The fool uses his, his words, his tongue, like a, a sword to bring harm and to, to hurt, like sword thrusts, rash words. But the wise man has measured words and, and healing words and comforting words. And so that's another benefit of being a man of wisdom is you will bring that blessing of, of healing in the way that you use your words to those that are hurting. Proverbs thirteen fourteen. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Wisdom imparts life. And again, there's two ways to think about that. There's the, the life imparting wisdom that is the wisdom of a father to his son who tells his son before he crosses the street, hey, before you cross the street, make sure you what? Look both ways, right? You are teaching your children the, the principles that are wise principles to navigate life and not to make decisions that are going to put themselves in harm's way. There's a, a life-giving element to our wisdom as far as just navigating the day in and day out of life. But then for us as believers, we know that there's another way that our wisdom can impart life. And that is when we use the wisdom that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. A wisdom that we'll talk about more later on in this, this morning's text. But that wisdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that is not the wisdom of the world, but is the wisdom of God. Because it's the wisdom of God that has been chosen by God to shame actually the wisdom of the world. And it's the wisdom of God that God has chosen to reveal the, the cross as the source of salvation. So our words as wise men can lead people not just to be preserved physically, but to be preserved spiritually as well, if we will use our words to point them to the cross and to point them to Christ. Proverbs 13, 20, another benefit here. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Another benefit is that wisdom rubs off. As you are a wise man, you will have a, a, a positive impact on other men that you spend time with, on other people that you spend time with. They will glean from your wisdom. Your wisdom will transfer. It will almost wisdom by osmosis, right? You, you spend time around a wise person. You yourself become wise in that. So there are benefits there to our wisdom in the sense of how it impacts our brothers in Christ. Proverbs 14, 16. One who is wise and cautious turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. We talked about this a little bit earlier already, but a wise person is going to make decisions that aren't going to put themselves in harm's way. You're going to have your eyes in your head, as Solomon says in our text. You're not going to fumble around in, in darkness and potentially wind up in a dangerous or a, a wicked situation. No, but a wise man is going to make wise decisions and turn away from evil. Proverbs 16, 21. The wise of heart is called discerning. Again, wisdom is going to allow you to make discerning decisions in your life. You are going to be one that, that people come to and seek counsel and seek advice from because you are a discerning person. Wisdom produces that in us. There's a benefit to wisdom because of that. Proverbs 21.10, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Wisdom may be better than gold, but wisdom will also potentially provide gold for you. There's the opportunity to store up, to save up for yourself, to make wise choices that lead to profit, that lead to the accumulation here, Solomon is saying, of physical and material wealth. That that is a potential benefit of wisdom for us. 
few more. Proverbs 24.3, by wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. We're not talking about an architect who has a degree. We're talking about a man who wants to have a godly home. If you want to have a godly home, if you want to have a strong home, if you want to have a strong foundation, men, wisdom is key to that. You can't be a fool and have a godly home. It's not going to happen. Proverbs 24.5, a wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. Solomon is saying it is a, a, a strong thing to be a wise man. It is a mighty thing to be a wise man. Two characteristics as men that we, I would imagine, want to be said of us, that we are, are mighty, that we are, are strong men, and wisdom is key to that. And then lastly, Proverbs 24, 13 through 14. Solomon says, My son, eat honey, for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. See, this is the end here where Solomon says, There is a satisfaction to be found in wisdom. Because that's what he's saying. As honey is sweet to the taste, so wisdom, if it's pursued in the right way, can be satisfying to your soul. Now, the, the type of wisdom that Solomon is pursuing in the rest of chapter 2 in our passage that we're looking at, this is not that, that kind of wisdom that satisfies. This is wisdom, again, for wisdom's sake. This is Solomon turning over the rock of being the smartest man in the room and saying, this is not going to satisfy us. But at the beginning, at least, because he's, he knows the rest of the story, he's alluding to the fact that there are benefits to us men in, in being wise men. We should desire to be wise men. And in being wise men, there is a, a wisdom, and that is the, the wisdom that we talked about over here at the beginning, that there, the, the, the street smarts wisdom versus the wisdom of the fear of the Lord. This is the wisdom of the fear of the Lord that is the wisdom that can satisfy the soul like honey to the taste buds. And so there is a benefit there as well. You know, wisdom may not provide the ultimate answer to Ecclesiastes 1.3, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? But God's word is clear that Wisdom benefits us. We should desire it, and also we should even, it's, it's commanded of us, we should pursue it. We should be men of wisdom, wise men. Verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And now here comes the contrast. Solomon says, and yet, and yet, for as much good as there is in wisdom, he says, yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. All of who? The wise and the fool. Run the gamut in between. Everything, everyone, all of the, the, the people that have ever walked the face of the earth at this point in time, they, they've met the same fate, right? And that is what? Death. Here comes the great leveler of the playing field in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is Solomon's first wrestling with death. It's not going to be his last wrestling with death. And he says, look, I observed it. And he says, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then? Why have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is also fleeting. It's vanity. Now I want us to understand man, that Solomon is giving us a glimpse into his struggle at this time. Okay, this is not the Solomon of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is the Solomon of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. One of our points a couple weeks ago was we need to learn from the experience of Solomon. Well, Solomon's teaching us here, and what he's doing to teach us here is he's giving us a glimpse into the mindset that he had as he was trying to find this meaning, this fulfillment, this satisfaction, something that wasn't fleeting. 
So when he says, what happens to the fool will happen to me, why have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is vanity. It seems like hopelessness and despair because for Solomon at the time, it, it, it was hopelessness and despair. And he's pulling us into that. And he wants us to see, look, I, this, is, this is what I discovered. And so he's saying, come with me and recognize and see that, that, that this is vanity. There are benefits, men, to living wisely, but it's important that even all of our wisdom can't thwart death, that death is going to be the ultimate arbiter for everyone. The well-known atheist Stephen Hawking once said this, I have lived with the prospect of an early death for the last 49 years. He said, I'm not afraid of death, but I'm in no hurry to die. I have so much I want to do first. See, Hawking was saying, I, I know that death is out there but I'm not in a hurry to die. I'm not afraid of death, but I'm not in a hurry to die. Why, Stephen? Why are you not afraid to die? Why are you not in a hurry to die? Well, because I want to accomplish so much first here on earth. With what? With his wisdom. I mean, that's what that man had. He wasn't going out and running the 40-yard dash. The joys of Stephen Hawking's life were the joys of his mind being applied to his studies. That's where his accomplishment came. And so he's saying, I have so much left to do that I want to do, that I want to accomplish. And so I know that death is out there, but death, stay away from me, though I'm not afraid of you, he says, because I have so much left that I want to accomplish, so much left that I want my wisdom to do for me. And yet Hawking would also say this. He said, I, I regard the brain as a computer, which will stop working when its components fail. There's no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That's a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. So you have this man who said, I, I don't want to die yet because I've got so much left to do with my mind. And then on the other side, he says, and yet my mind is simply a computer that's breaking down over time. And when it's done, there's nothing. Do you see the incompatibility between his two statements here? Everything that he was living for in one statement, he undoes in the other. And from an earthly perspective, he's right. Living for wisdom for, for wisdom's sake leads you to this conclusion that our brains are just simply a computer and when we're done, we're done. The synapses don't fire anymore from the grave. Nobody's launching any hypothetical theorems from the grave. And as we'll see later on in our text, those accomplishments that you made here on earth are just existing and waiting to be forgotten by future generations. The greatest minds and the greatest rulers, the wisest rulers have all succumbed to the same thing. Yet I perceive the same event happens to all of them. The scholar and the drunkard, the scholar and the drunkard rather, both die. And they're both buried in the same six foot plot next to each other in the same cemetery. And as people walk by generation after generation, they couldn't tell you who was the scholar and who was the drunkard. They couldn't tell you who has the letters after his name and who has the rap sheet following his name. Death happens to everyone alike. Wisdom doesn't help you escape death. And Solomon is frustrated by this. Well, men, as we wrestle with death, it can do one of two things to us. It can discourage us or it can cause us to remember and to realize that death is not a result of chance or fate. That death is something that God is going to bring to our lives. That we have been created by a sovereign God who created us with a set number of days to live on the face of this earth. And that set number of days is in stone and immovable. 
And if we understand that, then it should prompt us to say, okay, if that's true, if, if I have a certain number of days in front of me, then I need to ask myself the question, how should I then live in light of my impending death? Death will come, so how am I living in the meantime? How am I using this time that the Lord has given me? Second point this morning is this, live wisely with the knowledge of your inevitable end. Live wisely with the knowledge of your inevitable end. Tim McGraw, who's a country musician, which if you don't like country music, you're wrong. But Tim McGraw, who's a country musician, used to be a country musician. Now he's just a glorified pop star. But he wrote a song once called Live Like You Were What? A couple of you took it. Last night there was like 15 guys and I outed them. I said, ha, you've got country fans at your table and now they, they all know. So you men who finished that song title, now everybody knows that you're a country fan. Live Like You Were Dying. And the whole song is about learning from his dying grandfather that, man, he needs to take advantage of the days that he has because death is going to come to him too. And now Tim McGraw is no theologian, but the song has an element of of sound theology to it. And here's the reality. From the the, the time that we're born, and I remember thinking of this when I was holding my, my newborn children in my arms. From the time that we're born, we're dying. None of us are are gaining life. We are using our life. From the time that we're born, because of the fallen world that we live in, we are born into a world in which our bodies are designed to break down and ultimately give out and stop working. And our world kicks against that and, and hates that. And we look for medical advances to try to extend our life. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But here's the deal. Psalm 139, 16 says this. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book, God, were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The latest advancements in medical technology and science are going to have nothing to do with the day that you die. That's been set in place. When as yet not a single day of your life had passed. We have an allotted number of days, men. We have a budget of days in this life. And that starts decreasing from the moment we enter into this world. We are born dying. The question is, how are you going to live in light of the fact that you're born dying? What are you doing with your life? If you're just living for wisdom for wisdom's sake, at the end of your life, you're going to be like Stephen Hawking. And you're going to say, I've got nothing to show for this. My brain is simply a computer. It's going to break down. I'm going to be buried. And that's it. No, we need to rather wrestle with the fact that we are going to die and that we have a creator who has determined those days. And then we need to ask ourselves, how should I live in light of that? You know, that question is is old. Some of you may be thinking, how should I then live? Francis Schaeffer. That question goes back way before Schaeffer, right? goes all the way back to Psalm 90, which is the song of Moses. So it actually goes all the way back to Moses himself. Moses said this in Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days so that what? We might get a heart of, what's the word? Wisdom. You want wisdom and begin by thinking about your death. Begin at the end and then say, okay, if that's the end, how should I be living now? Because we don't know what tomorrow holds. See, Hawking was aware of death's reality, but didn't want to entertain its imminence because he had too much he wanted to accomplish. 
Christian, we need to be aware of both the reality and the potential imminence of our death. That is, that we could die at any moment so that we can know how to live wisely on this side of eternity. Jonathan Edwards, in his list of resolutions, has so many that have to do with this subject. But a couple of them, in one in particular that I remember, he says, look, I, I don't want to do anything that I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. What a great statement that is. That's living wisely. That's living wisely, not for wisdom's sake, but that's living wisely for the sake of the Lord. That's living wisely out of a fear of the Lord. And man, that's the type of wisdom that our impending death should instill in us. That 2 Corinthians 5, 10, that the Bema Seat of Christ, we have an appointment there. And that appointment, God has determined what day that is. And as Jesus said, right? Jesus said, who of you by being anxious can add what a single hour to your life? You can't. You can't. See, when God calls us home, we're going home. It's not like when we call our kids down for dinner and my son says, okay, I'll be right down, dad. Hold on just one more minute. Let me finish building this Lego set. No, when God calls us home, we're going home. And we're going to be before the judgment seat of Christ. And we need to be prepared for that. And we need to make sure that we have lived a life that is a life of wisdom in preparation for that. Well, what does that look like and how do I know if I'm doing that? Well, number one, it has to start with a relationship with Christ. If you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you cannot be wise the way that God wants you to be wise. But if you do have a relationship with Jesus Christ, let me ask you these two questions. Number one, is your wisdom producing a greater humility or a greater sense of pride? The wisdom that is wisdom and according to the fear of the Lord is going to drive in you and create in you and instill in you a greater humility because it's going to remind you of things like your death. Unlike the reality that, that we can't overcome that. It's going to remind you that you are the creation, not the creator. And such thoughts are going to keep us humble. Second question is this, is, is your wisdom fueling your relationship with Christ or is it hindering your relationship with Christ? The wisdom that is a wisdom born out of the fear of the Lord, which is the wisdom that should characterize us as wise men in this world, that is a, a wisdom that is going to drive you closer to the Lord. Your time in the word, your time in prayer, your time evangelizing, your time with brothers in Christ. Versus the wisdom of the world, which 1 Corinthians 1 says is at odds, right, with the wisdom of God. And if, if you would say, well, I'm a wise person, the world thinks I'm a wise person, but you realize that that wisdom is causing you to question God, it's causing you to doubt God, it's causing you to, to compromise on God's word, then then that is the wrong type of wisdom that you've been pursuing. Man, we need to be wise in light of our impending death. That death is coming to all of us. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise the way that God wants you to be wise? It begins with fearing God. Well, what does that look like? The end of the matter, Ecclesiastes 12.13, all has been heard, what? Fear God and keep his commandments. Wise living involves fearing the Lord and fearing the Lord involves obeying him. Living a life of faithful obedience to him. Proverbs 11, 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Again, wisdom is, is something that should cause us to be men of, of humility. Proverbs 15, 33 brings those two thoughts together. The fear of the Lord. There is the instruction of, in wisdom. And humility comes before honor. Fearing the Lord and humility. Two hallmarks of pursuing 
a wise life. Why? Again, because the end of the matter is to fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of men. This is what separates the fool and the, the wise man in the, the graveyard. It's did they possess the wisdom of the Lord, the fear of God. And that's not something that can be evaluated from us standing on the, the, the top side of the grave. That's an evaluation that takes place from the Father as he knows whether or not in our hearts we have done business with Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's what separates. That's the answer to Solomon's despair here. The same event happens to all. It, it does happen to all. But the same eternity does not befall both the fool and the wise person. Solomon's despair, though, it goes deeper. He says in verse 16, For of the wise, as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Again, this is Solomon bringing us into his despair as he's turning over yet another rock, desperately searching for some sort of significance. He, he hasn't gotten to the conclusion. He's looking back in his life. He's giving us a, a flashback. When we see in TV episodes previously on 24, right? That's what Solomon's doing with us previously in the book of Ecclesiastes, previously in King Solomon's life. He's taking us back as he's turning over this rock, looking for wisdom, and he's giving us insight into his conclusion and his despair as he says, there's no remembrance of the wise man. I can't even hope in the fact that my wisdom is going to leave me a legacy. In the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. There's nothing romantic about death for Solomon. Solomon didn't stay up at night in his kingly palace trying to figure out what he wanted on his epitaph. And you know what? No one who has died has benefited from the reaction of a single soul who has walked by their gravestone and said, oh, that's a clever statement on their gravestone. And that's kind of what Solomon's driving at. Just like he'd lived for bliss, for accomplishment, for treasure, he's now lived for wisdom, for wisdom's sake, and he's saying it's, it's worthless. He says, look, in a couple of generations, all of your wisdom, all of your street smarts, all of that, it's going to amount to, to a hill of beans. It's going to amount to nothing in the end. Once more, think back, as we've done a couple times in this series, to your great-great-grandfather and ask yourself how much of his wisdom is still around today. And maybe you say, well, there's some platitudes, there's some sayings that I'm sure have been passed on to me that he taught my great-grandfather, who taught my grandfather, who taught my father, who taught me. And so there's some of his wisdom around. Yeah, but do you know what wisdom that is that you can trace back to him? Now, maybe you benefit from some of his wisdom, but he doesn't benefit from it. He's not receiving any glory for it. See, men, sometimes we talk about different idols that we can live for. And, and wisdom may be more of a socially acceptable idol, but it's an idol nonetheless. And idols will ultimately always fail their followers. To live for li wisdom for wisdom's sake is, is as foolish as carving a little stone god and, and setting it on your mantle and setting a, a burning incense stick in front of it. It's both alike worshiping the wrong thing and both alike are in the end, going to burn, right? And we need to recognize that about worldly wisdom. Point number three this morning is this, recognize the finitude of wisdom. 
Recognize the finitude of wisdom. Yes, as Christians, as we've said, it's good to pursue wisdom. It's a biblical thing. It's even a command to pursue wisdom. But we have to be careful of our motives. Why do you want to be known as a wise man? Maybe it's because you want to be viewed a certain way. You want people to, to look at you and, and think of you. Ah, oh, man, he's a wise guy. Maybe you want people to come to you for advice or counsel. You want to be the guy that people think, oh, you know what? I want to go to him because of his wisdom. He's going to help me in this. And so they bring their, their problems to you and they, they elevate your, your sense of, of worth and value because you are a, a wise voice in their life. Or maybe you want a certain position. So you're pursuing the wisdom of, of book smarts. You want to be the smartest guy in the room, so to speak. Or maybe you simply just want the accolades. You want the praise from other people. You want, them to, to, you want to hear people say, look how smart that person is. How wise he is. If those are your motives, man, Solomon will look at you and say, why? What good is that, right? None of that is going to transcend this earth. If that's why you're pursuing wisdom, you're pursuing wisdom for wisdom's sake. And at the end, you're going to hear the Lord say, depart from me, I never knew you. A couple of questions just to drive this point home. Who said elementary, my dear Watson? Who said, who said that? It was not Sherlock Holmes. It was uh, actually the author was P.G. Wodehouse in a book called P. Smith Journalist in 1915. She had Holmes as one of the characters in the book. And she ascribed that statement from Holmes to Watson. But it actually had nothing to do with the original Sherlock Holmes series. Holmes never says that in any of the original books. How about this one? Winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Who said that? Lombardi did say it, but he wasn't the first. You know who the first was? UCLA football coach Red Sanders. Who said the ends justify the means? You're going to have to think back on this one. Machiavelli? Wasn't Machiavelli. He stole it. The first one, Roman poet Ovid. Who said insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results? Einstein never said it. That phrase was actually born out of the mind of an author in 1983 and attributed to Einstein. But Einstein never said it. So why do I bring all that up? You all have heard those sayings, those statements, and some of them are statements of, of wisdom, whether you would agree with it or not. Wisdom isn't everything. Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. The ends justify the means. Insanity, those are all statements, pithy statements of, of their wisdom. But here's the reality. They were either falsely attributed or never said by the people that, that they're attributed to. But they were born out of the minds of other people, people that nobody else knows. People that have long since been forgotten. And I, I don't know about you, men, but I don't think anything that I'm ever going to say in my life is ever going to show up in a quote book. And so for us to think that somehow our wisdom is going to last, our wisdom is going to transcend, our wisdom is going to remain, is foolish. Placing your hope in what wisdom might accomplish for you here in this world, living for wisdom for wisdom's sake is like leaning on the proverbial spider's web and expecting that it's going to hold you up. The world's wisdom is not the wisdom, men, that we should be pursuing. 
That's the wisdom that's finite. We need a wisdom that's not finite. Where does the wisdom that's not finite come from? It comes from God's word, right? First Corinthians chapter one, Paul talks about the contrast here. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Where's the philosopher? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? What a great thing for us to hold on to as we're reading the book of Ecclesiastes. As Solomon is saying, look, I gave myself to wisdom. I gave myself to the wisdom of the world to try to be the smartest guy in the room and it didn't satisfy. And Paul's saying, of course it didn't satisfy. Because that's the wisdom that is not the wisdom of God. If you want to be wise with a wisdom that's not finite, be wise with the wisdom of God. Solomon's not indicting all worldly wisdom as useless. He's just simply saying it's useless to get you over the sun. It's useless if you're expecting worldly wisdom to solve the problem of death. It's useless if you're looking to worldly wisdom to reconcile you with God. Worldly wisdom can't do any of that. The wisdom that you need is the wisdom of God, the wisdom of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says this in verses 26 through 29, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, even the things that are nothing. The world would look at that and say, that's nothing. God shows that to bring to nothing the things that the world would say are something. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The call to follow Jesus is not to call to, the call to come to Jesus with your pedigree and your education and your street smarts. The call to follow Jesus as Jesus issues it in the gospel is what? A call to come and take up your cross. Come and die to yourself. Come and take up the, ex the instrument of execution. And that's why the world, Paul says, looks at the cross and says that that is foolish. But the, in the end, this is the only wisdom that matters, is the wisdom that drives us to the cross. Because you can be the smartest man in the world, but if you don't have what the world would say is foolishness, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. Solomon's despair is a despair not over having pursued the wisdom of the fear of the Lord, but the wisdom of trying to be the smartest guy in the room. And he had concluded, okay, I've, I've gotten there. I've been there. And it doesn't satisfy. Look at verse 17. So I hated life. It's a strong statement by him. I hated life. And maybe some of you have been there too. You've gotten to the end of, of yourself and you've said, I, I hate this life. And Solomon says, because what is done under the sun was painful. It was grievous, sorrowful, depressing to me. For all is fleeting. Everything is fleeting and a striving after the wind and chasing the wind. Solomon reached a darkness that so many before him and so many after him would, would come to. He reached the depths of hopeless despair because he found that nothing under the sun would ultimately satisfy him. But men, here's what we have to remember. What we have to remember is Ecclesiastes 1.13 in the midst of all this. 
We have to remember Ecclesiastes 1.13, where Solomon wrote, it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. God has given to the children of men the unhappy business of trying to be the smartest guy in the world room only to find that that won't satisfy you. Why, God? Because he wants you to be driven to a different kind of wisdom. He wants you to be driven to a different God, not the God of your, your intelligence, not the God of your wisdom. He wants you to be driven to him. So this too, this rock that Solomon turns over and says, hey, is it here? No, oh man, that too is from God and it's from God just like the rest have been in order that we would be driven to the wisdom that matters, which is the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this reality. We thank you for this book. We thank you for your, your kindness in creating a world that doesn't satisfy us so that we would be only satisfied by you by instilling within us a soul that is restless until it finds rest in you. God, we, we thank you for that, as painful as it is at times. We pray that you'd be pleased with the rest of our day today, with these small groups, with our time. Uh, Lord, that we would be just faithful men. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.